the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, at this time, we are now uh, in what's called the prison epistles. And that's what we're doing, right? We're going through the New Testament letters of Paul in their chronological, chronological order, in the order of their writing. And so we did Colossians first, and now we're in Ephesians, not quite the order you have in your Bible. What we're in now is the realm where Paul is in prison in Rome. He's awaiting his trial before Caesar. You may remember some months back when we were in Acts, we saw uh, Paul's whole dramatic episode with the uh, powers that be and the trials he's going through, and he appealed to Caesar. And at the end of Acts, he's in prison, and it closes that way. And this is where we are. We're reading the letters that he was writing while he was in prison. So this includes Colossians, Ephesians, where we are now. Then we're going to go to Philemon and Philippians. So these are the four books that he writes in this uh, prison period awaiting his hearing before Caesar. Now, prison epistles is poorly titled because he wasn't really in prison. We get the feel, we get the image that he's in this cold, dark, dank dungeon with, you know, the little water droplets coming off the ceiling and filling in his cup. And that's his drinking water. And the rat is sitting next to him while he's penning some near some dim candlelight. And it's like at Wick's end. And he's like, I got to hurry because I'm almost out of light. Like, that's not the setting. That's like, you know, good dramatic setting but technically paul was not in prison at this episode of his life he was under house arrest which is basically just glorified probation so paul got to live in a house he got to have guests come in and out all the time he even got to leave the house but a roman soldier would have to occupy wherever he went so it was just glorified time out basically a time out for adults so Paul, uh, prison is sort of not the right metaphor to use here. Uh, maybe captivity epistles might be better. But this is the situation in which Paul writes Ephesians. So, in verse 3, we now come to the opening, the, the big, he's going to launch in right here. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Whoa, that verse alone is worth the whole night. It is loaded with such power and meaning. Blessed, he says three times the word blessed, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. So now we learn that God is being blessed, but he's being blessed because he's the blesser towards us. And it isn't saying you will be blessed when you get your act together or down the road when you accomplish, you know, your five years as a Christian mark, then you're going to get a special blessing. It's nothing futuristic about these blessings at all. It says past tense that he has blessed you. The blessings are already given to you. They're all for you and for the taking. And that's amazing to consider that he's not waiting for me to reach some status. And it's like, oh, here's a present. He's not bribing us towards more uh, sanctification or holiness. He has already lavished his blessings upon us. It's amazing. There's nothing more we can do to earn anymore. They're all given to us. Now, we're all experiencing these blessings at various levels and various degrees. And that's... Um, Part of what Paul's going to write about through this whole letter is, why are you not experiencing as much? How do you experience more? So, But it's very important to see that God has given us, it says, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. There is not one single blessing withheld from you. They're all available to you. This is a mind-boggling, spirit-blowing truth. <laughs> Inside, I can't contain what this is actually saying. And we say, oh, that's pretty cool. And we, in our limited experience, are thinking, yeah, I got that. We're like the fish who's put in the ocean, and we only swim in like a little fishbowl area. Or the dog, the dog I used to have, where uh, it was so used to being on a chain that when you took the dog off the chain and let it run wherever it wanted in the woods, way back there, it just stayed around the house because it was so used to being chained up. And that's like us. We have this vast, limitless resource at our fingertips to explore the blessings and depth of God. Yet we so often circle the same three or ten feet 
And there's this huge, and the angels are probably looking at us going, you guys are crazy. It is because of this verse that many have suggested a connection with this letter to the Ephesians with the Old Testament book of Joshua. Because this is exactly what God gives to Israel. Do you remember, as they were slaves in Egypt, they were liberated by God's mighty deliverance, taken through the wilderness, and then as they get to the promised land, God tells Joshua, hey, look, I want you to see, as far as the eye can see, Joshua, all of this land is already given to you guys. This is your promised land. It's your inheritance. All God is asking Joshua and the Israelites to do was rise up and take it. Go and get it. That's all they had to do. But there's enemies in there. Don't worry about those armies. I've got them taken care of. You just need to start marching forward. And the land, wherever your toe touches, it has officially become yours And all they had to do is keep going and keep exploring and keep entering, keep penetrating into this land. And as far as they went, God said, that's yours. That's an amazing promise to think about that. The people were given as much land as they could possibly tread upon from the Euphrates River to the Nile River. That's a huge, huge territory. And yet Israel, even at the peak of their existence under King Solomon, never possessed more than 10% of that promised land. And that's us sometimes. Every spiritual blessing, just go and enter into it. And we only know 10% of the blessed experience of being a Christian. It makes me uh, sad but excited to say, Ephesians, let's go. Lead us to the promised land, Paul. Take us there. And this is what we're going to see. So, in this book, Paul does take on a tone like the, he is leading the church, like, like, like Joshua led Israel into the promised land. Paul is saying, hey church, let's follow Jesus into our promised land. And so, what we're going to see in chapter 1, this very beginning part, uh, 1 through 14, it's going to be the lay of the land. Paul is going to show us this is what the land looks like. This is what your inheritance, church, Christian. This is what your promised land looks like. So here's the topography and the boundaries and everything that's in it. Go crazy. Then in chapter 2, verse 11, he's going to tell us how we enter into the land. So he begins with blessings. This is the lay of the land. Chapter 2, verse 11, he's going to talk about the blood of Jesus. And this is our means of entering into the promised land. As Israel left Egypt to go to the promised land via the blood of the Passover lamb. Do you remember some six odd years ago when we were there? (laughs) It's like five of you. Um, It was through the blood of the lamb that they left Egypt to go toward their promised land. And Paul is going to tell us it's through the blood of Jesus that we're able to now go and enter into this land we're looking at. And then in chapter 4, we're going to see the behavior of the church. He's going to start to talk about this is how you should act, this is how you should walk, this is how you should live. And that's the way that we settle the land. we're, We're developing a society. This is what it looks like to live in the promised land of Jesus. And then finally... He's going to talk about battle, and that's going to be our last message the third week. Battle, that's the spiritual warfare part. As Joshua and the Israelites had to go into the promised land, and there was battle, so Paul closes the Ephesian letter with, now that I've shown you everything that you have in Christ in your promised land, this is how we battle. And so we're going to look at how to stay in the land. Because Israel didn't do a good job at finishing off their enemies, did they? And it was because of their lack of finishing off the battle that the enemies finally grew big enough to push Israel out of the land and they lost their inheritance, right? So that's where Paul's going to warn us, listen, finish it off. You got to stand, you got to remain in the land that God's given you. And that's where the spiritual warfare is going to come in. So that's real quick, just kind of uh, what Paul's doing. Let's now enter into chapter one, verse three. And we're going to look at the lay of the land. This is our inheritance in Christ. So again, 1 verse 3, it mirrors what he tells Joshua. Wherever your toe touches, it's already given to you. 
So one verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So in verse four, what we are told is that in Jesus, you were chosen before the foundations of the world, before the world was even made, before Genesis 1 verse 1, Jesus had chosen you. That's blessing number one that we see. Blessed be the God and Father, every spiritual blessing. Well, one of these blessings Paul gives us is you were elected, you were chosen. You were chosen to be on the God team. And that is extremely exciting. Now, <laughs> I've played pickup games, you know, in the schoolyard. You do kickball or basketball or whatever. And um, when, I, when it was baseball, I was one of the first picked. <laughs> that was fun. But when it was uh, basketball, <laughs> so you got the kids all standing there and like, the team captains are like, oh, me, me. And they keep looking at my height and my inability to dribble the ball and all this stuff. And I was always one of the last picked. Amen, brother. <laughs> so... The comforting thing about before the foundation of the world is that Paul's not saying God looked upon humanity and then he's, ah, oh, just a few of you left. I pity you. You can be on my, t-. you know, you ever have that moment? Like, do you remember that when the last captain's like, I don't really want him. You take him, you take him. And the nice person be like, oh, I'll take you. And we're like, oh my gosh, we lost. We've got Brandon on our team. Like that's, that's not what God's doing. We didn't have time to prove ourselves or disprove ourselves. It was before anything began. God said them. I want them. I love them. They're mine, regardless of their failures or successes. And that is so good to know. I wasn't just a leftover. I guess there's only apples left. I better eat those. No, he wanted us. And that's an amazing truth there. So that he chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse five, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Now, you see there in verse 6, to the praise of the, his glorious grace. That is going to be the closing tagline for each of the blessings he's going to show us, or each of the milestones of this inheritance we have. There's going to be three of them. We've just looked at the first one. He chose you, number one. And then he's going to end with the tagline, to the praise of his glorious grace. So that's going to be how we're going to look for the next ones. So this first one, he chose us before the foundations of the world. And no, I'm not skipping it. Like some of you thought, I was just going to be coward and skip it. Uh, this word predestined us. <laughs> I want to skip it. So here's, this is the Calvinistic playground. They're the people that believe that God chooses certain people to go to heaven and certain people go to hell. And it's his choice, not your choice. You don't have free will. It's predetermined. It's predestined in the mind of God. Um, But what I want you to notice here is that Paul is writing to Christians. All right, notice that the plurality he uses is not them, but it's us. That's what he says. He predestined us. And what does he say about the predestination? He says he predestined us to go to heaven. He says he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The purpose of this adoption was for the praise of his glorious grace. What Paul's showing us there, and this is how I would, of course, the whole free will and God's election thing is a mystery, right? And it's a tension that we can all fight over and churches have been split over. Uh, Of course, that will never be solved. But one of the things we can see here is that this isn't saying God has pre-selected individuals to go to heaven and some to go to hell. What he's done is he's predestined. Don't get blown off by that word. All it means is you were given a destination, predestination you've been given a destination god had gave a group of people a destination 
It was in his mind and for the praise of his glorious grace that he would take this group of people called the church and give them their destination to be adopted as sons of the father of the father God. That's what he's saying is that we who are in the church, we are on a plane that has a destination. It's not haphazardly flying and finally going to land when it runs out of fuel, wherever that is. It might be the jungle of Nicaragua for all you know. Oh my goodness. No, that's not the idea is that you're on a jet that has a destination because God has predetermined what we're going to become when we come to Jesus. So what's going to happen? I became a Christian. What's going to happen to me? You are going to be adopted as God's son or daughter. That's what's going to happen to you. Not, oh, I hope I make it or, oh, I hope that I'm going to end up okay. No, listen, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That's what it means. It's not who is predestined, but it's where are we predestined? That's the goal here. So to get all crazy with um, God sends some to hell and some to heaven is to get a little bit um, excited about these words without thinking through what Paul's saying. So that's the first one. We were chosen in Jesus. Verse 7, number 2. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood we were chosen now secondly we have redemption in other words you've been bought back we sold ourselves as slaves to sin and we have been brutalized by that master but jesus has redeemed us he's bought us back that's what would happen in slave markets someone would come and redeem a slave they'd buy them and this is what god has done he's purchased us with his blood Um, So through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. And so he not only took us and bought us, but he gave to us insight to know his will. So verse nine is going to say he's made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which was set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So this is the plan. We've been redeemed. And he, as he redeemed us, it's not like he's some master or some lowly slave. Like what I do is my business. You just go scrub the toilet. That's what Paul's saying. That's not what happened is that as he redeemed us, he didn't just make us his slaves and servants, but he's elevated us as friends. And he now lets us know what his mind is and what his mission is and what his plan is and he's led us on the inside and he's shown us this is my plan you're gonna love this my child everything in heaven and earth they've been torn apart because of sin but i plan to reunite all these things together everything's gonna come together and make sense in me that's what's gonna happen and he's letting us in on that secret So we've been redeemed. It continues to verse 11. Part of our redemption is that we gain an inheritance. Verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There is your end tagline, to the praise of his glory. So that concludes blessing number two. We've been redeemed, and part of that redemption is we're let in on the plan of God, and we are given an inheritance. Do you see what's going on so far? Number one, you were elected, you were chosen. That's Abraham. You go back in the Old Testament, Abraham, of all the people on the earth, God chose Abraham and said, I want you to be my man, to make a nation that will be my people and bring salvation to the rest of the world. That in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was Abraham, chosen. What does Paul say about us? Chosen. And then it was Abraham's people who fell victims as slaves in Egypt. And uh, Moses comes along and God, through Moses, redeems his people from Egypt. He saves them. What does Paul say? We have redemption. They were through the blood of the lamb. We're through the blood of Jesus. And the Israelites were then brought to the promised land. And he said, go inherit it. This is your inheritance. And Paul says, so you've been chosen, redeemed, and you have an inheritance. Go take it. So Paul is paralleling so far. Our story of salvation with Israel's story of the Exodus. And so he's taking us to that promised land. Number three, verse 13. 
In Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. So when all that happened, when you heard the gospel and believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, this is unique to the church. When we follow Jesus on this journey to our inheritance, he gave us his own spirit to be with us and basically seal the deal. And you and I might sometimes wonder, am I, I going to make it? Well, Paul would say the Holy Spirit in your life is evidence that you're going to make it. He is the down payment is one way to say this. He's the down payment of your inheritance. Am I going to inherit all the blessings and promises of God? Am I going to be in heaven? Well, the Holy Spirit is God's proof to you. I've already bought you. So here's part of the payment. The Holy Spirit is proof. I'm going to finish the deal. That's the idea of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit is a blessing to the Christian, a constant encouragement, a constant reminder. You're his. Keep going. You're doing a fantastic job. You're almost there. And every time that we lose hope and we begin to doubt, the Holy Spirit will speak. And listen, listen to the Holy Spirit, because as he speaks, it's giving you that encouragement. And sometimes we, I don't know if God even loves me anymore, but is the Holy Spirit working in your life? Is he speaking? You should know then you're fine. You're sealed. You have, God has already written the contract. It's just a matter of getting you to the end. And he will, because the Holy Spirit will carry us. So that's our lay of the land. It's as if when Joshua was, you know, or Moses before Joshua was taken up to Mount Nebo and he got to see the promised land, but didn't get to enter. They got to see it. This is what Paul just did. He took us up to the mountain and he gave us a look at the lay of the land. You see that you were chosen and you were redeemed and given an inheritance with that. And you're given the Holy Spirit to seal you. And all is so much more. This is just the tip of the iceberg. The whole of the blessings of the Godhead are yours. Now, blessing is kind of a Christian word. Like apart from when people sneeze, we don't really use it outside of the church or outside of the Bible. Um, so... This word, it would, it would really bring value to Ephesians if we step back for a second and looked at where does blessing come from? And it actually begins in Genesis chapter 1 when God begins to make part of the creation. Uh, it was when he made the animals on day 6. He said, it says that he blessed them and told them to be fruitful and to multiply. And then he made the humans, man and woman, and he says that he blessed them and told them to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and the animals on the land, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. These are the original blessings. See, blessing was the, it was the state of being in the Garden of Eden. Eden was a blessed place. But the second Adam and Eve disobey God and are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, do you know what word you begin to see? Immediately the word cursed is brought up. Cursed are you. He says it twice right there. Then cursed is uh, Cain for killing Abel. And then cursed is the land, it says, when one of Noah's descendants were born. I'm sorry, when Noah is born, he's going to give us rest from this cursed ground. Uh, and then when uh, Noah wakes up from his drunkenness and he realizes that one of his sons snapped an Instagram photo of him in his tent, he, he curses his son Ham. Cursed is Ham, or Canaan, his other descendant. So cursed is used five times immediately once the fall happens. It's a world of cursing, cursing, cursing. But then God calls Abraham. He elects him, right? He chooses Abraham. And you know what Genesis 12 verse 1 tells us? Is not once, not twice, not three times, but five times God tells Abraham that he and his descendants will be a blessing on the earth. That is not accidental. God chooses people to replace the curses with blessings. And this is what's exciting is that happened with Abraham and Israel. They go to the promised land and Moses explains to them. Now, God will bless you if you obey his word. If you disobey, the curse will come and you will be removed from the promised land. 
And so Israel goes in, right? And they're told, yes, the promised land will be fruitful. Just be obedient and the blessings will come. Well, we know what happens. They were like Adam and Eve and they weren't obedient. And so rather than experiencing blessing, they experienced curse and they were exiled from their land and it was ugly. And we've gone through the books of the Old Testament. You may remember like Jeremiah and Lamentations, how brutal it was, the cursing that came upon them. But then we come to the church and here we have Paul using this blessed language. The language of the promised land, the language of the Garden of Eden. And this is what the church is being called into. You're being called out of a world of curse and into the land of blessing, into the inheritance of blessing. This is what we inherit. And so we are a small pocket of blessing in a cursed world. And that's what we're supposed to do is bring the blessings, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with the blessings of God not the curses of death, darkness, and division. Amen, amen. So, verse 15. So we've seen the lay of the land. Now what Paul's going to do is, wow, that was amazing. Let's pray. (laughs) So that's what he does. Verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering... You in my prayers that the Lord God, uh, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory. Now, this is what he's praying for, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Or in other words, 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened for the purpose that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So I want you to know these things. The eyes of your heart to be enlightened, have wisdom, to have knowledge of these things. One, that you may know the, uh, uh, I just read it. <laughs> what is the hope to which he has called you? Number one. Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And number three, 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's what I want you to know. I want you to know the great hope you've been called to, the riches of the inheritance you have in Christ, and the great power of Christ. I want you to know those things. And this is what we need. We need these. We need, Paul has given us an amazing view of our inheritance. And we'd be like, that's cool. And we go on with our normal life and never actually inherit it. And so now he's praying, I want you to see it. I want you to experience it. I want you to feel it. And so he closes that third one is the key one. Verse 19, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. He's going to harp on this because these blessings are so, so heavenly that we need to find a way to rise up to them. And that's why we're looking at rise in Ephesians. We have to like step up our game if we want to walk in these and actually experience these blessings. We can't continue to look down the ground and mutter and complain and grumble about everything. We have to rise up. So Paul's praying, please rise, see this. So know these things and the power. Why the power? Because the power of Christ. Is that which raises you up to see and to experience and to walk in and to inherit the blessings. So he will now explain rather lengthy what this power looks like. So verse 20, the power that he worked in Christ. So this is the kind of power he's talking about. The power he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's pretty big. And seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That's the power I want you to know. Yeah, that could help you rise. (laughs) Like literally, Jesus rose and that's what he's saying. I want you to rise too. This is a resurrection that's happening in our soul. This is what he's calling for. So how far did he raise Jesus? 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So in other words, there is nothing that will taught the power and the position given to Jesus. Ever. Not even in the happily ever after books. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So that great power has been given to him. And where has he decided to rule? Over the church. 
<laughs> it was all climatic. You're like, oh, uh, this? What? That's how much he loves the church. Now, he gives us an example of what rising up looks like. So he's going to show us, this has already happened to you, Christian, but it's time that you know it. So this is what's happened to us. Chapter 2, verse 1. Remember, he's still, this is part of his prayer, but he's kind of now just kind of explaining himself. So 2, verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were in the lump with everybody Going to hell in a handbasket, so they say. We were slaves. We were dead. We were zombies. We were just mindlessly walking and doing whatever the world tells us to do. But we've been raised up from this, he's going to say. You were that. And so some of us are going to just keep not realizing the power that has been invested in us to inherit our blessings. We're just going to keep on drunk, like you know, zonking around like zombies and vampires and those dead things. When really, he's saying, you're alive. Move on. So verse 10. Uh, I'm sorry, verse four, the famous, but God. So that was the condition, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with Jesus and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So you were dead, but listen, as Jesus rose from the dead, he's saying you too have been raised to new life. And more than that, not just raised from new life, but as Jesus took the seat of rulership next to the Father, you too are being given that position of rulership. And that's why Revelation, it kind of boggles our minds because we don't grasp it, but Revelation at the end says over and over that the saints will reign and rule with Jesus on the earth because this is our destiny. We've been raised and seated with him. Man, the king of the world, well, we're his little minions. He's got the dominion, we're the minions. A high schooler pointed that out to me once. It was really funny. So uh, that's where we are. Verse 8. Am I in verse eight? Oh, all this is okay. So all this is done in verse seven so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. So now in verse eight, so we know prayer is saying, rise up. I want you to know, remember in the early chapter, have the eyes of your heart and light and know these things, especially the power. Here's an example of that power at work in you. Now, finally, this is how you're going to rise. It might sound like you can't do that and you can't. So what you need to know in verses eight through 10 is that all of this is by the grace of God. That's what gives us the wings to rise. It is the grace of God by faith through faith. So two verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. So in other words, grace is God's work. Faith is our work, if you can call it that. It's the trusting his power that's what he's calling us to do. It is hard to just give up and say, okay, God, you do it. And that's hard, but that's how all this happens. We won't rise until we can let go. You know, we're holding on to the safety railing. No, it's too high. <laughs> just let go and trust. I'm going to carry you. I've got it. My grace is powerful. Didn't you just get that yet? It's powerful. So that's the lay of the land. He showed it to us. Now he prayed for us. Prayed that we would rise into it. And now the second part, the blood, the way we enter into the land, these inherited promises and blessings, the blood. Verse 11, 2 verse 11. Now, it's, it's, uh, it's as wordy. Um, what you need to understand is that Jews and Gentiles had trouble getting along, okay, back in the day. Jews were ethnically Jewish people who had very, very strict customs from the law of Moses that they obeyed and kept like circumcision 
taking rest on the Sabbath and specifically a big one, uh, not eating uh, certain types of food. Gentiles are basically everybody else in the world. And they ate things Jews don't eat. They didn't circumcise their boys like the Jews did. They didn't rest on the Sabbath. So, uh, and, and the big, even bigger is they come from pagan backgrounds. The Jews come from uh, one powerful God background, right? So there's this, <laughs> let's get along, everybody. And you're sitting at the table with food you can't eat, but they want to eat. Like, so it's, it's challenging. So that's one of the things we're going to see here. Now, what you also need to see is Israel was given the promises, right, in the Old Testament. Israel was given the promises. What Paul's going to say in just a minute is Gentiles were given none of that. That was all Abraham's people. Promised land and all these promises about the future kingdom that God's going to reign over the world with. And the Gentiles were outside all this. Well, Paul's going to say, Gentiles, you need to remember that you were outsiders. So don't be all high and haughty against the Jews. You were outsiders, lost, abandoned, orphaned. And it is by the great kindness of God that he brought you and said, okay, you get to have a part in what I'm doing with Israel. That's what he's going to say. So it's all by the blood of Jesus that we can now become inheritors with the people of God. This is by the blood. So this is our way in the blood of Jesus. So 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. So by the flesh, you're a Gentile. Uh, called the uncircumcision, that of course would be derogative. Oh, the uncircumcised. They're looked down upon by Jews. Uh, By what is called the circumcision. So the Jews called you the uncircumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Very sarcastic. Paul, I don't know if you know this, he's sarcastic sometimes. He said, okay, the circumcision, Jews, call you the uncircumcised Gentiles. Uh, The circumcision have their circumcision, but it's made with their hands. That's what he's saying. So you see, okay, so, so they, they circumcise the males with their hands, right? It's a, it's a man-made thing. That's what Paul's saying. Is the circumcision which they glorify over your uncircumcision, their circumcision is actually a man-done thing. It's done with human fleshly hands. And, and what's even further more sarcastic about this is he's not just saying it's just human stuff. He's actually using a phrase from the Old Testament that was always used in application to idolatry. You'll see it in the Psalms and the prophets. They'll say, and idols made with human hands. <laughs> or it'll talk about the temple of God made without hands. So to have something made with hands is to speak of it being not from God. And that's what Paul's saying is their circumcision, it's time is done. It's no longer the king of the world. It's now just made with hands. They're continuing and boasting about some idolatrous thing that they boast in. Woo! <laughs> that leveled the playing field real quick. <laughs> so verse 12 after his little rant there he says again remember that you gentiles were at that time separated from christ alienated from the commonwealth of israel and strangers to the covenants of promise and having no hope and without god in the world so he just shoved them way over here that's where you were you were so far from inheriting anything it wasn't even funny you weren't even on the radar but now here's another big but But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, way down there, you have been brought near. In other words, you've been brought right up to Israel through the blood of Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, Jew-Gentile, both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, like circumcision, that he might create in himself one new man. It's a new human made of Jews and Gentiles in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God. See that? It wasn't just the Gentiles, the far away ones that needed reconciliation with God. It was the Jews that needed reconciliation with God too. They both may have rec- be reconciled to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, That dividing wall. There literally was a wall in the temple in Jerusalem in which no Gentile was allowed to pass. They could come up near the temple, but once they get past this wall, there was a sign on it. Archaeology has shown a sign that literally said anyone who steps, any Gentile who steps past this wall does so at the cost of his life. So that's how they felt about each other. 
And now Paul's saying, hey, that wall is done. The cross of Christ has abolished it. And they can come too. They are inheritors and partakers. So in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. That's Jew and Gentile, far off and near. Uh, For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So here's the conclusion of the matter in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the prophets and the apostles or the order apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, there's a new temple, not one that kept Gentiles out, but one that is now built of both Jews and Gentiles who follow Jesus known as the church. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit and to just keep on going towards the promised land. That's what was built in the promised land. On the way, they made a tabernacle, but when they got to the land itself, they built a temple. And so here Paul, again, is bringing them, you guys are coming into the inheritance, into the land. Now, in chapter 3, if you'll notice with me, it reads very awkwardly. Look at 3 verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, my translation just puts a dash there. And verse 2, he starts to ramble on something completely different. He breaks his sentence. Now, if you'll turn to verse 14, you'll see the same thing. At least the first few words. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So, this is what we think happens here. In verse 1, Paul's going to now say, wow, that's a magnificent truth. Gentiles, you guys were outsiders. You're now insiders. You were exiles. Now you're inheriting the new promised land in Jesus. Um, That's amazing. So I need to pray for you again. So he does what he did in 1 verse 15. For this reason, then he launches into a prayer. Now in 3 verse 1, same thing. He's going to launch into a prayer. For this reason, I... The mention of prisoner for the Lord launches Paul into this discussion about how he's suffering, trying to bring Gentiles into the promises of God. (laughs) So chapter three is going to talk about that. It's basically a huge footnote. Verse two through 13. It's a footnote. It's Paul in mid sentence stopping and saying, wait a minute. Amanuensis writes on behalf of Paul. He usually would dictate his letters to people. So it's amazing that All this is not him hitting backspace 500 times like you and I do when we type a simple letter or email. Now, this is Paul dictating, right? And this stuff just flows out of him. I can't believe it. So he he just, you know, the amanuensis has already written part of what he said. He's like, ah, just put a dash. Let's let's, let's just, let me, we'll get back to that. And then he launches into a digression. So that's what you have here. Um, So what he says in this digression is he's basically describing further how the outside Gentiles were brought near to the inheritance of God. And you can summarize it right here in verse six, three, verse six. This mystery, the one that Paul's in prison for this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's how near they've been brought. The blood of Jesus has brought the Gentiles right up with the believing Jews to inherit the promised land in Jesus. Those blessings. Now he's going to pray for them in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the father for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Huh. Remember how Abraham was told through you and your descendants, every family on the earth will be blessed. And now Paul is bringing this great statement saying, I'm looking at a group of nations in the church and I'm saying they are blessed through the Abrahamic promise. Uh, For this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth, the length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a prayer. Twice he says, though, he wants them to be strengthened. And that's the heart of this prayer. I'm praying that you would be strong. And you could almost hear like God saying to Joshua, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua chapter one, three times God says that to him. Six, seven, and nine, those three verses. Be strong and courageous. And now to the church, he's praying, be strong, because you guys are about to rise and inherit these blessings in Christ. And this is not a time for cowardice or fear or discouragement. This is a time to march on in and say, yes, it's for our taking. Now, this is what I've always, what's always baffled me until very recently. Verse 18, it tells us that we may be able with strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length, and height, and depth. Four dimensions. Of what? Insert that for us. NIV specifically. We know the, the four dimensions of his love. It's inserted. The Greek is as ambiguous as my English standard version reads, and I think the New King James version reads as well. Um that you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, height, and depth, comma, and to know the love of Christ. So the NIV isn't really far off by saying love. They're just simply inserting the next phrase and saying, well, that's what he means, love. But it doesn't actually say that. It says, I want you to know these four dimensions. I also want you to know the love of Christ. Are these two separate things? What does Paul want them to know? The, the length, the depth, the height, the breadth. Of what does he want them to know? And you know what I couldn't help but think of? So I'll suggest this. That when he takes Joshua up to the Jordan River and he says, Joshua, these are the boundaries of your land. Go take it. Joshua wasn't supposed to just stop at Jericho and say, We've made it, boys. Let's 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 make camp and be done. He was supposed to take Israel to the furthermost borders of the land that they were given. This expansive, expansive, expansive land that is incredibly wide, long, deep, high. Just the blessings of God, Paul's saying, are limitless. This is a huge land. And I don't want you guys to be like the Israelites who only occupy 10% at the height of their power. Only 10%. I want you guys to keep on going past 10% so that you can experience how high this is and how deep this is and how long and how wide and how amazing your inheritance is. Keep going. Don't stop. There's no end. You satisfy yourselves with far too little. Like C.S. Lewis famously said in his sermon, The Weight of Glory. We are like children playing with tin cans or something like Playing with mud pies. That's it. Mud pies in the alley of a street. Because we don't understand the meaning of a vacation at sea. <laughs> We're so easily satisfied with mud while God's offering us a cruise. And Paul's saying, I need you to have the strength, like Joshua, to be strong and courageous so that you know just how, how, how plenteous this inheritance is. Do not settle. Don't live like you're chained 10 feet from the fence. <laughs> you have permission to explore and to keep discovering the riches and the depth of God. And now we realize, yeah, we need to rise and inherit because we're not allowing this prayer to sink in deep enough. So there were 10 spies, 12 spies who were sent to go look at the promised land in the book of Numbers. When Israel got to the edge, the 12 spies go in and they get to take a look at the lay of the land. They get to enter into it. They get to even see its fruit, the cities, every, how fruitful this land was. And to give us a hint, not only before this moment did the Bible hint that it's like the Garden of Eden, but when they're in the promised land, 
to prove it's like the Garden of Eden, they bring out a grape cluster that has to be carried on a pole between couple men. (laughs) This is huge, like bowling ball grapes. Like this is how fruitful this land is. And you know what 10 of those 12 spies say? Nope, too big. We can't, we, they didn't have the strength Paul was praying the Ephesian church would have. They were weak and cowardice. We can't do it. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. Paul, Paul would say, do you know what actually God looks at you as? And <laughs> ramble on his big long list there. And actually in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27, Deuteronomy 1, 27, we read that they actually said this, because God hates us, we are not able to inherit the land. Hmm. God hates you. They didn't get the blessings and that they're chosen and redeemed and given an inheritance. They didn't get any of that, did they? But Joshua and Caleb, the two spies that said, let's do it. We can do it. (laughs) Oh, they were exercising faith. And they said, let's inherit New Testament. I'm inserting the New Testament to their words. By grace through faith, we can do this. (laughs) Let's go. And they literally say the opposite of what the 10 say. And do you know what I mean? 27? We can't do it because God hates us. Well, in Numbers chapter 14, verse 8, Numbers 14, 8, uh, Joshua and Caleb say, no, if God delights in us, we are more than capable of going in. Do you hear that? If God delights in us, they got it. God has brought us this far. He wants us to have this land. He delights in us. Let's go. We can do it. They had the by grace through faith part nailed down. God delights grace and we can do it. Faith. They went in the only two of those of that whole generation, the only two that actually inherited. And so this is where we are. And I need us to stop and pause and say, how much are we exploring? How much grace do we believe in? And how much faith are we exercising to say, God doesn't hate us. He delights in us. This is our grace that we can trust in. And we're going to finish here at 320. This is the grace we can trust in. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, or I love the new King James here. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. But Paul does not say, now to him who's able to do all that we ask or think. Doesn't stop there. Doesn't settle for that. Nor does he settle for, now to him who is able to do above all that we ask or think. Nor does he stop that, now to him who is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. Paul keeps going. Four dimensions, baby. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. That powerful God. Let's follow him into our inheritance. And through him we can rise and not be feeling the earthly blues all the time. Because we know what we possess. And Jesus is our Joshua taking us there.